You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 90, The New Order. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by thanking our Patreon supporters for making all this possible. If you haven't signed up yet, please consider it. Not only is it a big help to me, you get to listen to the show without advertisements. Anyway, we left off last time in early 1806 with the funeral of Lord Horatio Nelson. All the way back in episode 81, I said the last months of 1805 would be some of the most astounding in the history of modern warfare. All the action we've talked about in the last series of episodes took place within only a few months. Remember, most of 1805 had been relatively quiet, with the Royal Navy fruitlessly chasing the French across the Atlantic Ocean and back again, and the bulk of the French army stationary in camps along the English Channel, reorganizing, training, and waiting for an invasion order that would never come. Napoleon didn't actually move his troops to the Rhine and begin preparations for war with the Austrians and Russians until August. And by the time the Grande Armée was on the march against the Habsburgs, it was already late September. The troops had to endure sleet and snow as they entered Germany. We've covered so much ground over the last few episodes that I thought it might be helpful to weave everything back together into a cohesive timeline and to tie things in with events we've covered earlier in the show. Hopefully, this will illustrate just how fast all these events unfolded, and how they fit together. So, let's start with January 1st, 1804. Not only was it the first day of the new year, it was Haitian Independence Day. General Jean-Jacques Dessalines released a proclamation that included the famous words, quote, We must live independent or die. End quote. The infamous massacres which marked the beginning of his regime would begin in late February. On March 10th, all over France's North American colonies, the tricolor flag was lowered for the last time and replaced by the Stars and Stripes. The Louisiana Purchase was concluded. In that moment, the young United States of America nearly doubled in land area. In combination with events in Haiti, this represented the end of Napoleon's ambitions in the New World. Back in France, a new system of civil law went into effect in late March. This was the famous Napoleonic Code, 
which we discussed in great detail in many past episodes. On May 10, 1804, William Pitt became Prime Minister of Britain for the second time. You might remember that he had been removed in 1801 to pave the way for peace with France. But with France and Britain at war once again, he was able to stage a comeback. On May 18th, the French Senate declared Napoleon Bonaparte Emperor of the French. It would be months before his coronation, but Napoleon I now ruled as a monarch. On October 2nd, the Royal Navy launched the second of its raids on the port of Boulogne. They had a whole arsenal of brand-new high-tech weapons, created by the American inventor Robert Fulton. But nothing went as planned, and the raid fell far short of expectations. Three days later, on October 5th, the Royal Navy was successful in ambushing a Spanish convoy carrying precious metals from the Americas at the Battle of Cape Santa Maria. This brought Spain into the war, although it would be a month before the formal declaration of hostilities arrived. On December 2nd, the French elite gathered at the Cathedral of Notre Dame in the heart of Paris for Napoleon's coronation. Despite the presence of the Pope, Napoleon crowned himself, emphasizing that he was a self-made man who had won the crown through his own achievements. That brings us to the end of 1804. On March 26, 1805, Admiral Honoré Gontome attempted to slip the British blockade outside the port of Brest. This was supposed to be the first move in Napoleon's grand plan to draw the Royal Navy away from the English Channel to get his six hours of mastery that he believed would enable an invasion of the UK. But Gontome's ships were exposed when a sudden gust of wind blew away the fog, and he was forced to return to port. Four days later, on March 30th, to the south at Toulon, the second move of that plan was successful. Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve slipped through the British blockade and sailed west to pick up more ships in southern Spain and make for the Caribbean. This marks the beginning of what we call the Trafalgar Campaign. May 31st through June 2nd was the highlight of the combined fleet's brief time in the Caribbean. They seized an important British fortification at Diamond Rock, but soon learned that Lord Nelson was hot on their heels. And, less than a week later, on June 8th, the combined fleet set sail on yet another arduous Atlantic crossing. On July 22nd, Villeneuve and the combined fleet made contact with Admiral Sir Robert Calder's squadron off the coast of northern Spain, near Cape Finisterre. The British won a narrow victory, buying valuable time for the Royal Navy to prepare a fleet for a climactic battle. In late August, Napoleon ordered his forces at Boulogne to break the camps along the channel that they had occupied for years. They would begin marching south and east, towards the Rhine, in preparation for a renewed war on the continent, which everyone knew was coming soon. What had once been referred to as the Army of England became the Grande Armée. The planned invasion of England was never officially cancelled, but it was now very much on the back burner and will remain there for the rest of our story. Britain was safe, or at least much safer than it had been. On November 28th, Lord Nelson and the HMS Victory arrived outside Cadiz. 
The hero of the Nile took command of the blockade squadron and waited for Admiral Villeneuve and the combined fleet to make their move. The first significant engagement of the War of the Third Coalition was fought just over a week later, on October 8th, near the town of Wertingen, northeast of the city of Ulm in modern Germany. The Austrians were soundly defeated, and it should have been a warning to the Austrian commander in this theater, General Karl Mach von Leiberich, that things were not going as planned. But, as I'm sure you remember, General Mach was not the type to pay attention to warnings. The Battle of Elkingen was fought six days later, on October 14th. This was the battle in which Marshal Michel Ney led his men in a dramatic charge over a ruined bridge. The French were victorious, and the way was cleared to approach General Mach's base of operations at Ulm. The Grande Armée arrived outside Ulm two days later, October 16th, and fought skirmishes against Mach's men, while they set up artillery on the hills outside the city, preparing to blast the Austrians into submission. Back in Cadiz on October 18th, Admiral Villeneuve suddenly changed his plans and ordered his ships to make sail. In theory, they were headed for Italy, but everyone knew this was the beginning of the long-delayed showdown with the Royal Navy. The very next day, in Germany, on October 19th, General Mach finally bowed to the inevitable and surrendered Ulm with all his remaining troops. He had lost almost his entire army without fighting a single major engagement. Just two days later, on October 21st, Nelson's force finally caught up to the combined fleet, just off Cape Trafalgar, south of Cadiz. The Battle of Trafalgar raged until the early evening. Nelson was shot just after one in the afternoon and died at around 4.30. The horrific storm which would batter the British fleet for the rest of the month hit that night, around midnight. The biggest battle of the Italian theater of the war was fought nine days later, on October 30th, near the town of Caldiero, near Verona. Napoleon's old right-hand man from the first Italian campaign, Marshal André Massena, faced off against the vaunted Archduke Charles of Austria, younger brother of the emperor. This battle is not well documented, and there is debate over who actually won, but Caldiero ensured that Archduke Charles and his army were unable to play any role in the German theater of the war. The next day, October 31st, back in Germany, the Grande Armée defeated a combined Austro-Russian force at the Battle of Lombok. This represented the first major event in a new phase of the campaign, in which Napoleon was chasing a large Allied column under the great Russian general Mikhail Kutuzov hoping to force them into a major engagement before they could link up with reinforcements. Over the next few weeks, there was almost constant skirmishing and several small-scale engagements as the Grande Armée nipped at Kutuzov's heels, most notably the battles of Amstetten on November 5th and Durenstein less than a week later on November 11th. The French captured Vienna without a fight on November 13th, you might recall that ludicrous scene in which Marshals Lannes and Murat and General Henri Bertrand were able to seize a valuable crossing over the Danube without a shot fired by bluffing the Austrians. Two days later, on November 15th, the Prussians delivered their ultimatum to Napoleon, 
threatening to join the war in one month unless the French unilaterally surrendered all the gains they had won so far. Obviously, Bonaparte would not comply. The French were now working under a deadline. Napoleon had to do something to change the course of the war before the Prussians began hostilities on December 15th. The next day, November 16th, there was yet another clash between the French and the Austrians at Schungrebern. The French won the battle, but Marshal Murat made a crucial mistake, delaying his attack by several days. This enabled Kutuzov to finally put some distance between his column and the Grande Armée. He was able to link up with his reinforcements, ending the chase the two armies had been engaged in for over a month. On November 26th, Napoleon personally scouted the terrain around Brune, today the city of Brno in the Czech Republic. Apparently he liked what he saw, because he began formulating plans to fight a major battle against the Allies near the city. On the night of December 1st, Napoleon walked through the camps of the Grande Armée. His men lit torches, and became nearly ecstatic as they realized it was after midnight, and now December 2nd, the anniversary of the coronation. Only a few miles away, the leadership of the Allied army decided all this noise meant the French were retreating. On December 2nd, exactly one year after the coronation, the Grande Armée met the Austro-Russian army near a village called Austerlitz. As I'm sure you remember, during the course of that fateful day, around half the Allied army was either captured or became casualties. It was one of the most stunning victories of Napoleon's whole career. Two days later, on December 4th, French and Austrian diplomats signed a ceasefire and agreed to begin negotiations for a permanent peace treaty. Only 22 days later, on December 26th, the two powers signed the Treaty of Pressburg. Austria was severely weakened, as was the institution of the Holy Roman Empire. Napoleon used the spoils to increase his influence in Germany and reward his German friends and allies. That takes us to the end of 1805. On January 9th, 1806, Lord Horatio Nelson was finally laid to rest at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Just two weeks later, on January 23rd, Prime Minister William Pitt died, aged just 46, probably of a bleeding ulcer. Chronologically, that is the last major event we covered in the narrative. Hopefully, that helped illustrate just how eventful this period was. The Trafalgar campaign culminated at exactly the same time that Napoleon was closing his noose around General Mach at Ulm, and Massena and Archduke Charles fought the decisive clash of the Italian theater at Caldiero while the post-Trafalgar storm was still ravaging the British fleet. Only four months before the Battle of Austerlitz, most of the Grande Armée was still at Boulogne, and still referred to as the Army of England. It's been a long time since we talked about Haiti on the show, but we ended that story with their declaration of independence at the beginning of 1804, less than a year before Napoleon's coronation. The world was changing very quickly. During the most dramatic period of late 1805, massive historical events were occurring more than once a week. It seems almost unbelievable in retrospect. 
but imagine how much more astonishing it must have been at the time, when the consequences of all this change were still unknown, and people were used to a much slower pace of life. If we zoom out and look at changes in the French political system, it had been sixteen and a half years since the people of Paris stormed the Bastille, a little over thirteen years since the fall of Louis XVI and the Declaration of the Republic, eleven and a half years since the Thermidorian reaction and the fall of Robespierre, and just over six years since Napoleon's seizure of power in the coup of Brumaire. Looking at the international situation, Napoleon now had direct or indirect control over modern-day France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, most of Italy, and a slice of Croatia. And, as we'll see later in this episode, he was in the process of cementing control over much of western and southern Germany as well. France was also allied to Spain, with her massive colonial empire in the New World and the Pacific. But, as we've seen in past episodes, that alliance was not exactly a partnership of equals. Even the junior officers of the Spanish navy who fought at Trafalgar were aware that Napoleon was the one calling the shots, not the weak and ineffective government in Madrid. Looking at Napoleon's own life, it had been twelve and a half years since he left Corsica for the last time arriving in France as a penniless refugee after a harrowing escape from the wrath of Pasquale Paoli, and it had been about twelve years since he first proved his worth as a military commander during the siege of Toulon. Just over ten years had passed since the infamous events of 13 Vendémiaires, when Napoleon saved his career and won the gratitude of the government by playing the key role in suppressing a royalist uprising in Paris. It had been just under ten years since he had been rewarded with command of the Army of Italy, and married Josephine. So the spring of 1806 would see the tenth anniversary of the early battles of the First Italian Campaign, when Bonaparte began to build his international reputation. It had been seven and a half years since Napoleon left for Egypt to seek his destiny in the East, and it had been just over six years since he left the Army of the Orient, stranded, and returned to France. As I already mentioned, it had been just over six years since the coup of Brumaire, and it had been five and a half years since the Battle of Marengo, his first major victory as ruler of France. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. In the coming summer of 1806, Napoleon would turn 37. He had come very far very fast, and still had well over a decade of life ahead of him. Physically, he had more or less reached his final form. The skinny, awkward Napoleon of the 1790s was long gone. He still ate terribly on campaign, but with all those state dinners back in Paris, 
he had finally filled out. By now, he was wearing his hair quite short, and as he entered middle age, it would start thinning on top. Within a few years, he would also start developing his famous paunch. By this point in our story, Napoleon had settled on a standard set of clothes that he would wear most days for the rest of his life. Almost every depiction of Napoleon in popular culture shows him wearing this outfit, so you have probably seen it before. It was a uniform of a colonel in the Imperial Guard. White breeches, white waistcoat, and white shirt with a dark uniform jacket. He preferred the forest green of the Chasseurs à Cheval, a light cavalry regiment, but alternated with the dark blue uniform of the Grenadiers of the Guard. Other than the color, the uniform jackets of the two regiments were pretty similar, both trimmed in red with prominent gold epaulettes. On his head, he wore his famous bicorn hat. According to one historian, he went through about eight a year. When a new one arrived, he made one of his aides wear it for a few days to break it in. There was some variation in design, but they were always plain black, only adorned with the red, white, and blue cockade of the Revolution. In bad weather, he wore a long, high-collared, double-breasted wool coat that reached down to his calves. Generally, these were gray, but he owned a few in blue and green as well. This outfit became something of a signature. Napoleon was instantly recognizable, even on a crowded, chaotic battlefield. It was a distinctive look, but quite simple and unadorned for someone of Napoleon's stature. Many people who met Bonaparte during this era expressed surprise that he cut such an unassuming figure. And by this point in our story, with each passing day, the contrast between Napoleon's relatively humble appearance and his immense power grew more stark. This average-looking man in his plain colonel's uniform was the most powerful European in generations. With his recent victories, I think it's safe to say he had surpassed King Louis XIV of France. To find another European leader as influential as Napoleon, I think you have to look back to the Renaissance, to the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, who ruled over nearly half of Europe in his prime. By early 1806, the reign of Charles V was exactly 250 years in the past. So, he was a more distant figure to Napoleon than Napoleon is to us. All of which is to say that no one within living memory had ever ascended to such heights within the European geopolitical system. It was an amazing personal achievement. Napoleon had only been in power about six years. Just six years before that, he had been a total unknown. Twelve years to go from anonymous army officer to the most powerful European leader in centuries. Of course, it had taken a lot of luck, and he hadn't done it alone. As I hope I've demonstrated over the course of this show, the story of Napoleon's rise is inseparable from other important stories. If we really wanted to, we could spend the whole rest of the episode listing all the lucky breaks and the various geopolitical, economic, and demographic trends that enabled Napoleon to reach these great heights. Hopefully, the first half of this episode helps you fit together the last year or so of the show into a more complete picture, and gives you some idea of where Napoleon himself was standing at this moment. However, there is one more piece I'd like to add to the puzzle before we close the discussion on this momentous period of late 1805 and early 1806. 
This story involves the Holy Roman Empire, which means it is convoluted and difficult to find modern parallels. There is simply nothing in our world remotely analogous to the Holy Roman Empire. People often compare it to the European Union, which is not far off in some ways. But the EU has been around for about 30 years at the time of this recording. In early 1806, the empire was over a thousand years old. Today, there is no political institution on earth of any consequence anywhere close to that old. The Holy Roman Empire was not static. In fact, it had evolved and changed quite a bit in all that time. By the dawn of the 19th century, it would have been unrecognizable to its founders. But, however the institution had changed, it had always been one of the centerpieces of European geopolitics. In those thousand years, Europe had seen plenty of diplomatic turmoil. Old status quos had fallen apart, and new ones rose out of the ashes. But through it all, the Holy Roman Empire had always remained relevant. It was an unwieldy institution, almost impossible to govern, but somehow, slowly, begrudgingly, against its own nature, it had always managed to change with the times. Now, the European status quo was crumbling once again, and it was an open question whether the empire would be able to adapt, as it always had in the past. In his dealings with the Austrians, Bonaparte had deliberately weakened the Holy Roman Empire at every turn. He didn't harbor any particular hatred for the institution, beyond his general contempt for anything inefficient, especially anything that smacked of old feudal methods. But he wanted to break Austrian power in Germany. The empire was the main conduit for Austrian influence over the German states, and so he worked to undermine it. The most recent blow was the Treaty of Pressburg, which the Austrians had been forced to accept after Austerlitz. As we discussed in episode 85, the treaty was designed to weaken the empire, and even seemed to call its future existence into question. In three successive peace treaties with the Habsburgs, France had forced massive changes on the empire. But, it remained to be seen if those changes represented a slow destruction, dismantling the empire piece by piece, or an opportunity for the empire to reinvent itself yet again, adapting to new geopolitical conditions. You might assume that the French were hoping for the former and the Austrians for the latter, but the reality was a bit more complicated. As Austrian power waned and French power grew, one outcome the Habsburgs had to worry about was that they might lose control over the empire altogether. The position of Holy Roman Emperor was not hereditary, but elected by a council of powerful rulers from within the empire. However, the Habsburgs had such a tight grip on imperial politics that, with one brief exception, a member of the family had sat on the throne since the Renaissance. But, as Napoleon's influence in Germany grew, the Habsburgs began to worry that he might steal the empire out from under them, and have either himself or a puppet elected Holy Roman Emperor. Remember, when he crowned himself Emperor of the French, Napoleon had filled his new monarchy with references to Charlemagne, the founder of the Holy Roman Empire. Many in Austria worried that this meant he was trying to build a case for himself as Charlemagne's true successor. 
which might imply a claim on Charlemagne's empire. And in fact, Napoleon actually had discussed this idea with his foreign policy advisors. But by late 1805, he had rejected it. But, of course, they had no way of knowing that at the court in Vienna. As they formulated their policy towards the Holy Roman Empire, the Austrians felt they had two struggles, not only to preserve their influence, but to prevent the structures of the empire from being appropriated and turned against them by the French. As for Napoleon, as I already mentioned, he had moved on from the idea of taking the imperial throne for himself. By late 1805, he had an alternative plan for Germany, an entirely new institution, similar to the Holy Roman Empire, but without any of the old outdated feudal trappings, to be based in Western Germany within France's sphere of influence, and, most importantly, looking to Paris for leadership rather than Vienna. In the wake of the Battle of Austerlitz and Treaty of Pressburg, those plans were coming closer to fruition. These had been deep wounds to Austrian influence and prestige, and in the early months of 1806, those wounds were bleeding. France's allies within Germany were bound even closer to Paris, and neutral and even Habsburg-aligned countries began to tilt their foreign policies towards Napoleon. Many of them did so begrudgingly. Everyone knew the old system needed reform, but few were eager to see this upstart Corsican, tainted by his association with the revolution, become the leading figure in German politics. Napoleon gave the duchies of Berg and Cleves in western Germany to his old friend and brother-in-law, the flamboyant cavalryman Marshal Joachim Murat. He did so unilaterally, without permission from the emperor or any of the ruling institutions of the empire. There was now a sizable slice of territory within the Holy Roman Empire, ruled by a marshal of France and member of the extended Bonaparte family. Napoleon also used his influence to ensure that his uncle, Cardinal Joseph Fesch, was appointed to the position of coadjutor to the Archchancellor of the Empire. It's not worth taking the time to explain exactly what this position was, but suffice it to say, it was another sign of France's growing influence within the empire. Few of the princes of the empire were happy with these changes, but what could they do? They ruled over small countries. They had no choice but to bend with the prevailing winds or face destruction. It was becoming increasingly clear that the Treaty of Pressburg had not settled any of the outstanding issues within Germany. In fact, the treaty had only further disrupted German politics. The whole region was now in a state of flux, and matters would not be settled without more negotiations between the great powers. In early 1806, the Austrians were preparing to send a new ambassador to Paris to negotiate these outstanding issues and hopefully forge an understanding between the two countries. Emperor Francis II's pick was Count Cabenzel, a former foreign minister and probably the most experienced and respected diplomat in Austria. Napoleon had dealt with Cabenzel in the past and did not like him. He told Francis that he found Cabenzel, quote, odious, end quote, and would refuse to accept his credentials if he was dispatched to Paris. Napoleon suggested a different name for the appointment, 
and the Habsburgs agreed. It should tell you something about the position of the two countries that Napoleon was able to dictate who he would be negotiating with. His choice was a young rising star within the Austrian diplomatic service, a 33-year-old nobleman from western Germany. This man was a staunch conservative and stalwart opponent of both France and the revolution. But, in his dealings with French diplomats, he was always helpful, courteous, and honest. At least as honest as a good diplomat can afford to be. He had even formed personal friendships with some members of the French diplomatic corps. This was a person you could deal with, even if he didn't agree with you. His name was Clemens von Metternich, and we will have a lot more to say about him in future episodes. Metternich would later say of the somewhat unusual circumstances of his appointment, quote, I do not think it was a good inspiration of Napoleon's, which called me to functions which gave me the opportunity of appreciating his excellences, but also the possibility of discovering the faults which at last led him to ruin and freed Europe from the oppression under which it languished. End quote. So, suffice it to say, Metternich had quite a high opinion of himself. But I think there's a grain of truth there. He would learn a lot from Napoleon during their long and complicated association. For the moment, Metternich's main mission was to sound out Napoleon's intentions for the future of Germany. But by the time he arrived in Paris, those intentions were already becoming public. On the 12th of July, 1806, 16 of the most powerful princes of the empire from western Germany signed the Treaty of the Confederation of the Rhine. This was the new, modern alternative to the Holy Roman Empire devised by Napoleon and Talleyrand. Article 1 of the treaty stipulated that the 16 princes, quote, shall forever be separated from the Holy Roman Empire, end quote. Rather than an emperor, the new confederation would be led by a so-called protector, and that protector would, of course, be Napoleon Bonaparte. There were a few territorial changes, but basically things would stay the same. The 16 former princes of the empire were simply shifting their loyalty from Vienna to Paris. Over time, France would apply some pressure on the members of the Confederation to adopt modern systems of administration, but at least for now, the same people remained in charge. It was a far cry from the heady days of the 1790s, when the French had been eager to overthrow all tyrants and export the ideology of the revolution at the point of a bayonet. Of course, there were a lot of advantages to this more subtle approach. The governments of those sister republics of the 1790s had often proved unpopular and incompetent. Whatever else you could say about these former princes of the empire, they had a proven track record of managing their countries. Perhaps it was better to slowly cajole them into reform than to force it on them all at once. And there would have been some real drawbacks to forming a new revolutionary state in Germany. Germans were probably the most numerous nationality in Europe. If they started getting ideas about forming their own national state, unified by common language and culture, rather than obscure old feudal ties, 
they might easily become powerful enough to shake off French influence and become a new rival right on France's doorstep. In fact, the history of the late 19th and early 20th centuries would show that the French were right to be worried about this possibility. Napoleon himself had once said, quote, If the Holy Roman Empire did not exist, France would have to invent it to keep Germany weak. End quote. And so Napoleon had to strike a balance. He wanted his German vassals to be powerful and effective enough that they could govern well and provide him with money and manpower, but had to be careful to keep them weak and divided enough that they would never be able to challenge France or get any wild ideas about German national unification. As Metternich traveled towards Paris, French officials deliberately delayed him. So, by the time he arrived, this new Confederation of the Rhine was already a fait accompli. The formation of this new institution was the most serious blow to the empire in generations. But it was not necessarily fatal. Austrian diplomats still harbored the hope of preserving what was left of the empire under Austrian leadership. But on July 22, 1806, Napoleon slammed the door shut on those hopes. He issued an ultimatum to the Austrians. Francis II must abdicate the throne of the Holy Roman Empire by August 10th, or France would renounce the Treaty of Pressburg and resume hostilities. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Francis and his advisors deliberated for days, but they had few options. Returning to war was totally out of the question. The Austrian military was shattered, and there were still French troops within Habsburg territory. If hostilities recommenced, it wouldn't be much of a war, just another expensive and humiliating occupation. So, what if they complied with Napoleon's wishes? Due to the opaque and complicated imperial system, if there was a vacancy on the throne, interim authority would fall to the rulers of Bavaria and Saxony, both of whom were allies of Napoleon. With French influence within Germany growing every day, and two of his allies temporarily in charge of the empire, Napoleon would likely be able to control the election of the next emperor. So, abdication was not a good option either. There was one other option a way to avoid either fighting the French or handing them the keys to the empire. But it would involve doing the unthinkable. The Austrians could dissolve the institution altogether. Obviously, there were some drawbacks to this idea. It would be possibly the greatest humiliation in the long history of the Habsburg family. The damage to their prestige and international standing would be almost incalculable. But, then again, Napoleon had just crushed their entire military and occupied their country in the space of only a few months, and now was poised to take the empire away from them, 
how much worse could it get? Back in 1804, in the wake of Napoleon's coronation as Emperor of the French, Francis II had himself declared Emperor Francis I of Austria. Previously, his title as ruler of Austria had been Archduke. His title of Emperor came solely from his position as head of the Holy Roman Empire. That might sound a bit convoluted, but basically, for the last two years, Francis had two imperial titles, one of which was not tied to the Holy Roman Empire. That meant he wouldn't actually lose his rank of emperor if the empire was dissolved. And there would be some benefits to this momentous decision. The Holy Roman Empire had become a joke, and everyone knew it. We just saw one of its most prominent members, Bavaria, join forces with the institution's greatest enemy in a war against the emperor himself. The Habsburgs spent a great deal of time, energy, and resources trying to administer this thing that was, by design, almost impossible to administer. We've seen time and again how they got precious little return on all that investment. So, you could make the argument they would have been better off if they were no longer bound to this unwieldy, dying institution. They would be free to focus all their attentions on the considerable number of territories held personally by Francis. And so, weighing these unattractive options, the Habsburgs decided it was better to destroy their own empire than risk it falling into the hands of the French. For the rest of our story, the man we have known as the Holy Roman Emperor Francis II will be simply Emperor Francis of Austria. On August 6, 1806, Francis issued a proclamation. Before we start, I'll remind you that the term Holy Roman Empire was barely used at the time. In 1806, it was usually referred to simply as the German Empire. Anyway, quote, we therefore declare by these presents that we regard the bond which has, up to now, united us with the body politic of the German Empire as severed, that we consider the office and honor of supreme head of the empire as lapsed, owing to the union of the Confederation of the Rhine, and that we are thereby released from all duties undertaken with regard to the German Empire and the imperial crown worn and the imperial rule conducted on its account as resigned, as is hereby done. We at the same time absolve the prince-electors, princes, and estates, and all members of the empire, and in particular the members of the imperial supreme courts and the remainder of the imperial civil service from their duties, by which they were bound to us by the constitution as legal supreme head of the empire. All our German provinces and imperial dominions we free from all engagements which they owed under whatsoever title to the German Empire, and we shall, as Emperor of Austria, be diligent in bringing the same in their union with the body politic of Austria, and, when peaceful relations have been restored with all powers and neighboring states, to that pitch of happiness and prosperity which is the aim of our wishes, and will ever be the object of our most earnest care. End quote. And, just like that, the empire of Charlemagne, which had stood for a thousand years, was gone. 
Over the course of this show, we've seen many ancient and venerable institutions swept away, first by the Revolution, then by Napoleon. But nothing we've discussed on this show approaches the scale of this change. That said, believe it or not, the legacy of the Holy Roman Empire has not totally vanished. There are today still two independent sovereign states that were once members of the empire, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg and the Principality of Liechtenstein. Out of the 50 self-governing imperial free cities, there are still two, Hamburg and Bremen, which remain self-governing free cities within the Federal Republic of Germany, subject only to the federal government. As I hope I've demonstrated, the destruction of the Holy Roman Empire did not come out of the blue. This question of what would become of the moribund empire had already been building long before the French Revolution, long before Napoleon was even born. But recent events had brought that slow-simmering crisis to a boil, and now the empire was gone forever. All over Central Europe, the emperor's declaration was reprinted and posted in public spaces. It was generally greeted with total disbelief. Over the course of this show, we've seen how the empire was weakening and struggling to stay relevant in a rapidly changing European diplomatic scene. But average people are not privy to all the ins and outs of diplomacy. Few of them had contemplated that such a thing was even possible. In fact, legally speaking, it may not have been possible. Many more educated observers questioned whether or not the emperor actually had the authority to unilaterally dissolve the empire. After all, the position of Holy Roman Emperor had never been that of an absolute monarch. He was always constrained by tradition and required the consent of his nobles to govern. Technically speaking, I think they actually had a point. But what were they going to do? Sue Emperor Francis? Sue Napoleon? According to one historian, many less educated people believed this was all a trick. Many peasants and poor workers viewed the empire as the ultimate oversight over their local officials, who were often not well-liked. They believed corrupt politicians and nobles were trying to convince the common people that the empire no longer existed so they could carry on their schemes without having to worry about the populace reporting them to imperial authorities. Many of the members of the German nobility, who were now lining up to bend the knee to Napoleon, privately mourned the end of the empire. For all its faults, it had served generations of their ancestors. Now the future was uncertain. So there were a lot of negative feelings about the end of the empire at every level of society. But there was also a great deal of indifference. The simple fact was, the vast majority of the subjects of the empire had little direct relationship to it. It wasn't a big part of their daily lives. They didn't think much about it, and not much had changed for them now that it was gone. A minority of the subjects of the Empire were happy to see it fall. As we've discussed in past episodes, there were people all over Europe who cheered on the French Revolution and Napoleon. They looked to the new system emerging in France as a model, and hoped to bring similar changes to their own societies. Others were not so keen on France, 
but looked at the Holy Roman Empire as hopelessly backwards, an obstacle to positive change and reform. So, some were happy to see the hated empire fall, even if they weren't so thrilled by the idea of Austrian influence being replaced by French influence. But these sentiments were mostly restricted to the more radical members of the bourgeoisie and a few progressive nobles. Most people within the empire greeted the news with some combination of sadness and horror, if they cared at all. Fortunately for Napoleon and his new Confederation of the Rhine, the millions of people within the former Holy Roman Empire were not politically mobilized. Outside of the very top echelons of society, most people saw themselves as passive observers of geopolitical events, not participants. In a modern democracy, such a drastic and unpopular move would almost certainly generate mass protests, and probably organized political movements aimed at some kind of return to the old order. But in 1806, most people just shrugged their shoulders and went on with their lives. There were some notable exceptions. Some people did stand up and speak out against this new order. The city of Nuremberg in southern Germany was occupied by French and Bavarian troops in the spring of 1806. In theory, they were there legally as allies of the new Confederation of the Rhine. But foreign soldiers are not always seen as friends. Many in the city resented their presence. An anonymous political pamphlet began circulating among the literate classes of Nuremberg. It was entitled, Germany in its deep humiliation. It denounced the Confederation of the Rhine and the French, and called for patriotic Germans to resist both. The leaders of the French garrison were incensed and began an investigation. They traced the pamphlet back to its publisher, a printer and bookseller named Johann Philipp Palm. Palm was arrested and brought to the French-controlled fortress at Braunau in modern-day Austria, where he was interrogated. Palm refused to give up the name of the pamphlet's author. On August 25, 1806, a French military court sentenced him to death. Still, he refused to name an accomplice. On August 26, Palm was executed by firing squad. Palm's case was not typical. As I've already mentioned, the vast majority of people were politically apathetic, and even if they weren't, the French simply didn't have the resources or capabilities to play thought police. Early 19th century states could be brutal, but they were still in the Dark Ages when it came to the science of oppression. It would be generations before modern states honed their secret police forces and intelligence agencies into the really terrifying institutions we know from 20th century history. Still, it's an illustration of the types of severe measures the French were willing to contemplate to clamp down on dissent. France and its satellite states were now truly an empire. Napoleon was ruling over dozens of recently conquered territories that included millions of non-French people. The French could not afford to have these types of rebellious ideas take root. We've seen in past episodes that Napoleon was willing to be ruthless in the suppression of rebels. 
This had been a part of his character going all the way back to the beginning of his career. Remember the notorious Easter riots in Ajaccio back in 1792? He wasn't a psychopath, he didn't revel in bloodshed, but this was a man who loved order, and when he felt a firm hand was needed to preserve it, he never hesitated to make an example, even if it meant engaging in brutal violence and injustice. When he was a lowly National Guard commander back in Ajaccio in 1792, this tendency to ruthlessly punish rebellion had provoked a riot, and resulted in dozens of deaths. Four years later, as a general in northern Italy, he had dealt ruthlessly with a small rebellion led by conservative Catholics, killing hundreds. Two years after that, as the de facto viceroy of Egypt, this tendency had provoked a city-wide revolt in Cairo, and resulted in the deaths of thousands. Now, the scale of Napoleon's power has increased again. There were tens of millions of people living under Napoleonic rule, many of whom were not French and had no experience or understanding of the French political currents that had brought Napoleon to power. Napoleon's carefully crafted politics of national unity had stabilized his regime and made him popular within France, but they had little relevance to the millions of Germans, Italians, Dutchmen, Swiss, and others who now found themselves under Napoleonic rule. Johann Palm's story was not exactly typical, but he would be far from the last person to find himself in front of a French firing squad after daring to defy Napoleon's new order. And so, in the aftermath of Austerlitz and Trafalgar, this would be the new dynamic on the European continent. These were dark times. The old geopolitical status quo was clearly collapsing. That was now undeniable. With the power of the Grande Armée and France's dynamic modern government, Napoleon would try to forge a new status quo, founded on French hegemony. Bonaparte's supporters believed he was on the verge of permanently ending the cycle of wars between the great powers that had periodically devastated Europe for over a hundred years, finally imposing peace on the continent at the point of a bayonet. His opponents saw things very differently. To them, Napoleon himself was the main source of all this instability, and so, if Europe was ever to know peace again, he had to be contained or eliminated at any price. The British victory at Trafalgar had guaranteed that for the foreseeable future, Britain would remain as a center of resistance to Napoleon's new order. Looking back through history, these periods of contested, collapsing status quos are always very dangerous, and almost always bring deprivation and suffering to the people caught up in the chaos. Early 1806 was no exception. The stage was set for more war, destruction, and death, as the French and their allies struggled to impose their new order on the continent, and the British and their allies sought to tear it down and restore something resembling the old system of great powers. A lot depended on Russia. The British were convinced the Russians stood to lose a lot if France continued to rise, and so believed they could count on Russia to be a reliable ally against Napoleon. 
Napoleon believed he could sell this new order to the Russians and win them over to his side. Only time would tell. The future of the entire continent was now at stake. None of the European powers felt they could afford to let their rivals dictate that future. This would be a fight to the finish that would push all the participants to search for new ways to wage war and new methods to raise revenues, recruit soldiers, and manage their societies through the storm of conflict. But that's all for the future. Until next time, thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun, or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.